All right. So what did I miss? Any, anything cool happen? Oh, thank you. Thank you, sir. I felt better. Um, I've been on vacation for two weeks, for those of you who are new. And um, it was a fantastic vacation until I got COVID. Uh, two days left. So uh, don't worry, I tested negative, so I'm not contagious, but uh, I'm still weak. My Fitbit just told, just, my Fitbit just congratulated me on uh, 45 minutes of cardio for the morning. And uh, I, all I did was walk up the stairs and down to my office. So still a little weak, but that's it. Uh, I'll be all right, but it's out there. It's out there like I've never seen, so please be careful, y'all. Um, don't be complacent. You don't want this. Just even isolating for five days was rough. Just being stuck in my bedroom and not being able to eat with my family, that was the hardest thing of all. So uh, I just bless you. I protect you in the name of Jesus, but you do your part to protect yourself. Uh, it's out there. Yeah, I just want to thank those of you who held down the fort while I was gone, more than held down the fort, uh, advanced God's purposes in our church. Uh, you really don't need me, and the sooner you realize that, the better off we're all, we'll all be. Uh, I'm glad to be here, though. I'm glad to be here. Glad to be back with you, and uh, vacation's good, but this is what it's all about, uh, partnering with God's people to do God's work. Uh, today we're going to talk about connecting our worship life to our everyday life. How, how it's so important to have this integration between what we do on Sunday and what we do Monday through Saturday. Uh, because it doesn't always happen, right? I went to visit one of uh, somebody, a Christian, at their workplace uh, once and and this person is he deals with high-powered people uh, day in and day out and makes deals and uh, you know he mentioned something to me which I thought was curious because we're talking about faith and business and and he said I, don't, I won't trust somebody when I when I go to them in their office and I see a Bible on their desk and I was struck by that you don't trust a fellow Christian but that's not what they meant. They, they, what they were saying is that it's so easy for people to use these outward signs of piety to manipulate or to hide something darker. That it's so easy to look like a Christian and to do the things that Christians might do to, to worship like a Christian and not be one in everyday life. And, and for a lot of us, I think we, we encounter this either in an either in our own life or in our world where we see this disconnect. How, how can it be that somebody goes to church and yet acts so opposite in other situations where you can't even believe that they're Christian? And a lot, a lot of that happens, right? Where, uh, <clears throat> you know, Christianity, this, this name that brings with it these expectations of of what you should be doing, going to church, you know, tithing, that it brings these expectations that people fulfill, and yet there's a disconnect 
between that and their everyday life. And uh, that's a problem. That's a problem. There's so many problems with that. From, you know, bringing a, a bad reputation to God, where people look at uh, this disconnect between people's worship life and everyday life, and they're like, I don't want any part of that. You know, there, there are people that don't believe in God because they see this disconnect in Christians. Um, there's the problem of society literally just becoming worse because the people that claim to follow this God are not doing the things that this God is asking them to do. And so there's no justice in the world. There's rampant poverty and inequality and violence and dishonesty in business. And, and society's just worse when there's this disconnect between our worship life and our everyday life. And so God addresses this through the prophet Isaiah. You know, prophets are, I love prophets. They're, they're not the most fun people to be around. Um, you know, my mother-in-law is a prophet. And, uh, and I'm not saying she's not fun to be around. I love her with all my heart and I respect her and honor her. But sometimes, you know, we go and we get prayed for by her. And she speaks, she has this gift from God where she's able to speak very specifically and accurately into your life. And, and uh, more in the beginning, I used to get very nervous when I get prayed for because I, <laughs> I'm worried that God's going to expose all my faults and my failures and he's going to, you know, give me a talking to. Uh, it's not like that. It's, it, uh, she, uh, God is very loving uh, when he speaks. But... He does expose the truth, right? That's what prophecy is. Prophecy exposes the truths that we want to hide. Uh, it, it, it's like prophecy is like a, a surgeon's scalpel. It, it cuts. It opens us up. But its purpose is for our healing, for our correction. And that's what God is doing through Isaiah when he's speaking to Israel with, with this very uh, direct and brusque and, and maybe even harsh language. And God is saying, I hate your worship. I hate your worship. I hate your festivals. I hate your sacrifices. I hate your new moons. I hate your Sabbaths. I hate these gatherings. These, like, who asked you to do all this? And you could easily say, well, well God, you did. <laughs> these are all the things you commanded in your word. And that's what's so uh, shocking about these words from Isaiah is that these are all things that God commanded the Israelites to do. But somehow the way the Israelites were doing it was not what God wanted. And I think for, when, I, when I study this, I think the key is this misunderstanding, this wrong perspective about worship that people can have and that we can have today. You see, for, for many people, worship is like a payment for blessings. Worship is, is like this bribe you give to God so that He'll give you what you want. And this is how the pagan world around Israel, that's what worship was for them. You have the rain god, 
You have the God of military victories. And if you want their blessing and favor, what do you have to do? You have to feed them. This was the mindset of religion at that time, is that we need to make these sacrifices and give these, these foods so that this God will either bless us or not destroy us. So for many people, worship is payment for God's blessings. And even today, that's how people can think of it, that people can look at church and Christianity as this means to an end. Like, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. I want blessings in my life. And so I need to do these things in order to get God to give me those things. I need to go to church. I need to stand. I need to read the Bible. I need to do all the religious things so that God will give me what I want. It's very natural to think that way, right? Because humans, we, we want to do things that benefit us. And so if we think going to church is going to get me blessings, then that's what we do. But this is actually the opposite of what God wanted and what worship actually is. You see, in, in the Old Testament um, worship structure or system, worship, the public worship, the acts of worship, they were not payment for future blessings. They were actually a reminder of God's past faithfulness, grace, and blessings. If you think about the story of Israel, how, you know, what was the sequence of events? So Israel was enslaved in Egypt. They were under hard labor. And what was the first thing that happened? Did they worship God and then God brought them out? Did they pray and God brought them out? No, they were just in pain and crying and, and broken. And, and God heard their cries, their desperate uh, cries of pain, not prayers, just cries. And he sends Moses and delivers them out of Egypt. So the deliverance, the salvation was the first thing that happened. God uh, poured his grace out and saved them, pulled them out of the mess, pulled them out of the problem, pulled them out of the oppression, pulled them out of the bad situation, pulled them out of the abuse, pulled them out of the addiction, pulled them out of the mess that they were in. He did that first. And then he took them on a journey through the wilderness, a freedom journey. And in those 40 years in the wilderness, there was a process of freeing, freeing these people from the bondage of slavery, from the mentality of slavery, from the, uh, the, the habits and the perspectives of slavery. God was freeing them through the wilderness. And then he brought them into the promised land. But, but the deliverance happened, and then in the wilderness, the law was given through Moses, and, and then the promised land. And the worship came after the deliverance, the law, and ultimately it would be established in the building of the temple in Jerusalem. So it was, it was almost the last thing to happen. And if you look at the main religious festivals of Israel, um, that's the nature of these festivals that God is complaining about. These were not, uh, God didn't command Israel to worship these 
three major festivals. What were the major festivals? The Passover, uh, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. The Passover, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Booths. What were all the meanings of those festivals? Look at it, Passover. Passover celebrates God's salvation when God spared Israel in Egypt, spared the firstborn. The Feast of Weeks celebrates uh, the harvest. And um, you can think of it as this, uh, this celebration of finally reaping the fruits of the Promised Land. And the Feast of Booths is a celebration of how God sheltered Israel in their wanderings in the wilderness. And even to this day, you know, pious Jewish people still celebrate Sukkot. You know, they build shelters in their backyard and, and they try to live in those shelters during this festival. But it's a reminder that God is my shelter. Passover is a reminder that God is my savior. Uh, the Feast of Weeks is a reminder that God is my provider. And so if you look at the festivals of Israel, they were designed to remind people of what God has done and to instill in them a gratitude that leads to a transformed life, into a life of obedience to God's law. Do you see how different these perspectives of worship is? The, the pagan way of seeing worship as payment to a God that is kind of stingy or angry, or worship as a celebration of a faithful God who found us and saved us in our darkest time when we were in the deepest trouble, when we didn't even know how to pray. God saved us in that moment. And, um, and so this is the difference between a worship that's disconnected from everyday life and worship that is integrated with everyday life. Where worship because you can't encounter, worship is not just a reminder of God's past faithfulness, but it's also an invitation to experience him in the present. That when we gather here for worship, do you know that God is here? You know that, right? God is here in this place. God is with us right now. Jesus is actually present. When we celebrate Holy Communion, we believe that Jesus is really present in this meal with us, that God is with us. And so worship is not just a celebration of God's past faithfulness, but it's an entering into the reality of his presence, his favor, his love, his grace, his forgiveness. And you can't have worship like that, genuine worship, a genuine experience of God's grace and forgiveness. You can't leave from that unchanged because those who encounter God's grace, when I come to God and, and even though I'm not perfect and you know, I, I've, I've sinned and I've failed and um, I've disobeyed and I've lacked faith and I've lacked love and I've lacked patience and I come to God, I come to church on Sunday and I experience not judgment and condemnation but grace and forgiveness and love and mercy and acceptance, then when I leave from this place, how can I be judgmental towards others? How can I be impatient towards others? How can I be unforgiving towards others when God has shown me so much grace? See, a genuine encounter with the grace of God 
makes you gracious. A genuine encounter with the love of God makes you loving. A genuine encounter with the mercy of God makes you merciful. merciful. And an genuine experience of the holiness of God makes you holy. It's not you. It's not your effort. It's just encountering God. And so, true worship is what God wants. God says, you know, stop your meaningless sacrifices and offerings. Stop. Just stop treating church as some kind of bribe to get me to do what you want. Just stop. And, and come and be washed and be cleansed, be forgiven, and let that transform your heart and let that produce in you uh, a desire for justice and mercy. Let it transform you. What Israel failed to do, the church of Jesus centuries later would would do. Did you know that <clears throat> the church, this Christian movement, this little ragtag cult, this sect of Judaism around this person Jesus, um, it grew exponentially for centuries. In, uh, in 40 AD, there were a thousand Christians. In, in 50 AD, there were 1,400. In, in 100 AD, there were probably about 7,500. In year 150, there were 40,000. In year 200, there were 217,000. In year 250 AD, there were 1.1 million. And by 350 AD, there were 33 million Christians. And this was despite all of the authorities, except for a few eras, trying to destroy this movement, like actively seeking to quell and destroy Christianity. What was so powerful about Christianity that they, they were able to grow exponentially year after year? And why is it that today Christianity has such a bad reputation? There were three main reasons that Christianity grew in the early centuries. Um, <clears throat> number one was identity. So the Christians were an interesting bunch because they were mostly... Um, so, so the Christians of the early centuries, they were diverse. They were uh, democratized. Um, and, and so you had this group of people from all over the known Greco-Roman world gathering together, sometimes not even speaking the same language, rich people, poor people, Jews, Gentiles, Greeks, uh, uh, Hebrews, people from all walks of life coming together and finding this unity in Jesus. And, and that was really attractive. Christianity was a counterculture. Christianity was not mainstream. Christianity, you know, Christians were the original hipsters. They didn't go the way the Greeks and the Romans were going. They went this weird other way and people took notice and people either thought it was really weird and persecuted them or it was really attractive and joined them. 
but it was polarizing. Uh, the Christians were the original punk rockers. They didn't do things like everybody else, and they were willing to be different. But they were so diverse as well. They brought people together from all walks of life, all kinds of races. But the other interesting thing about their identity was how democratized it was. You know, most pagan religions had this very set authority structure, and, and at the highest level, it was very inscrutable that you had pagan priests, you had educated uh, Jewish teachers. And so most other religions were for the elites, for the best and brightest of society. But Christianity was different because you had fishermen leading the movement. You had, you had, you had a carpenter who was the head of the movement. You had, you had plumbers and you, know, you had blue collar people filling the ranks of the Christian faith. And when they got together, there was not this rigid hierarchy. It was like the Holy Spirit came upon the whole community and, and somebody who had never graduated high school started teaching. And somebody who had never had public speaking experience in their life began to prophesy. And somebody who ran the, the local you know, bread shop started laying hands on people and healing them in the name of Jesus. And, and so because of the Holy Spirit, the Christian movement was incredibly democratized. And I love seeing that um, the past couple weeks since I've been gone, you know, we had Jan speak and we had Paul and Leanne speak and, and they did a fantastic job. And, and it's just a reminder that it's not about the pastor. It, the movement is you, is God in you. And any one of you could be called to give a testimony or to proclaim God's word or to lay hands on the sick and see them healed or to go and start a mission. Any one of you could accelerate or spark an incredible move, move of God. Uh, so it was incredibly dynamic. Can you imagine going to a worship service back then and, and just seeing everybody participate, not just the priest? So that was very attractive. And, and the Christian, uh, the second thing that was so attractive about Christianity was their deep faith, was, was their dynamic faith and how it produced miracles. People were getting healed. Demons were being cast out. Uh, people were being uh, miraculously transformed, freed from their former lives. And their faith was so strong, it was different from people who worship Zeus or Apollos or, you know, Apollo or, or Athena. You know, the, the pagan gods, you had your pick of like 20 to 30 different gods and you could kind of like switch loyalties. But the Christians were unique in that they only worshiped um, the triune God and, and Jesus Christ, the Lord. And they were so stubborn about it that even when emperors tried to force them to recant, they refused. They would rather die than curse the name of Jesus. So that type of faith was unusual and attractive. But as powerful as those were, you know, do you know the most compelling thing about the Christian movement was their behavior? was their lives. Because they did things that the, the Greeks and the Romans would not do in terms of how much they loved each other, shared their possessions, and took care of the least and the, and, and the lost. 
how they cared for their widows and their orphans. There's this, um, there's this amazing quote from <clears throat> the Emperor Just, uh, Julian. Julian, um, so Julian was an emperor in the, in the fourth century AD. And, uh, you know, he was born and baptized into the Christian faith, but he later rejected it and, um, and decided, I'm going to go full pagan and I'm, I want my whole country to go full pagan. And I hate these Christians. And uh, because, you know, a Christian emperor had caused the death of his family. But he was determined to destroy Christianity. But he was getting so frustrated because this Christian movement kept growing. And he writes to one of his priests, one of his pagan priests, about these Christians. He called them Galileans as a derogatory term. And he writes to one of his priests and says, this was during a time when... Um, so there was a city called Caesarea, and there was a plague in that city. And a lot of, a lot of people were fleeing that city because they didn't want to catch the plague, um, except for the Christians. The Christians remained in the city to care for the sick and to care for the poor. And, um, and Julian writes to his priest saying, for when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the priest, then I think the impious Galileans observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. And they have gained ascendancy in the worst of their deeds through the credit they win for such practices. And so what he's saying is that these Christians are taking care of not only their own poor, but our poor, the, the Roman poor. There are, are counts in other um, plagues. In the, um, there's this plague in the fourth century called the, uh, the Plague of Cyprian. Um, I can't remember the name. Cyprian or somebody like that. Cyprian Plague. And um, it was a devastating plague. It was probably a smallpox. And people were breaking out. And they were having diarrhea and vomiting. and it was People were just dying. And there are accounts of how uh, the Romans were abandoning their sick. You guys ever watch Monty Python and the Holy Grail? It's kind of a niche thing. I, I loved it when I was in high school. But there's this scene in that, in that movie where it's during the medieval plague, and, uh, you know, this guy, this town crier is going around saying, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. And, uh, and a guy wheelbarrows out his, his like, dad, who looks dead, but then, uh, you know, he brings him out to, to give him to the town crier, and, but then the, the guy in the wheelbarrow speaks up and says, but I'm not dead. I feel fine. I feel happy. But the son just wants to get rid of him. <laughs> so, he, no, he, don't, don't worry about it. He's really dead. But that was actually happening, where relatives were kicking out sick people, and I'm thankful that my family didn't do that to me when I got sick, but they were literally kicking out their family members because they didn't want the plague. And in contrast, the Christians, 
we're, we're caring for not only their sick, but every, all the sick. And they were the ones that began like the, the earliest hospitals where there was a systematic way of caring for the sick. And so, so those that were cared for by the Christian community had a much higher chance of surviving. That like two-thirds of the deaths were preventable just by proper feeding and care. And so that's why the Christian movement grew. They had this incredible community that was diverse and democratized. They had this incredible faith that was able to produce miracles and that they were willing to die for. But most of all, they lived a life of love and charity. And love and charity and caring for the poor, caring for the widow, caring for the fatherless, to God, that's what justice looks like. It's not just about prosecuting criminals. It's about caring for those who don't have the power or the, or the resources to care for themselves. And so that's why it's so important to have this connection between our worship life and our everyday life. And the, and the thing that, that we can start with is, is to reframe how we think about worship. Is that we're not here on Sunday to get God to do what we want. We're here to remember what He has done for us. We're here to enter into this incredible work as we celebrate uh, the, the life and death of Jesus. When I think about, uh, all right, what can I ask God for? in prayer. And I come to this table and I think He already died for me. He already died for me. The Father already gave me the Son. So what can I ask for? I can ask for anything and everything. Because through Jesus, God has, has given me already the best thing, which is His own life. That, that the life of Jesus is now in me so that my life can be in Him. So let's take this time to worship God. Don't let this be another ritual to get through, to get God to do what you want. Let's come to God with gratitude. Let's come to God really celebrating and understanding how much He has already loved us and forgiven us.